Welcome to Real Personal Finance. I'm your host, Scott Frank, CFP, CFA charter holder, and founder of Stone Steps Financial. And I'm your host, James Canole, CFP, MBA, and owner of Root Financial Partners. The premise of our show is simple. Money can be confusing, but it doesn't have to be. Our goal is to answer real personal financial questions that we hear from our clients and our listeners. Each episode, we answer one personal financial question in a clear and understandable way. Because money is a tool. And when you understand the language of money, you can make better decisions to improve your financial life. Hi, James. Hey, Scott. Welcome back to another week. Thank you. I hope we have a question today. We have another question. Awesome. Of course. Yes. Well, then I'm excited for it. Yeah. What's our question for today? So the new question is from John. Thanks for writing in, John. And just listeners abound, thank you for all of your questions. Your questions help us help others. So if you have a question, please submit it. Um, John says, I recently listened to episode 69 about target date funds. When I think about retirement, I think of it in three phases, early retirement, mid-retirement, late retirement. Does it make sense to allocate my retirement funds across three target date funds? For instance, one for five to 10 years, one for 10 to 20 years, and one for 20 plus years. Thanks for the question, John. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, I think about retirement that way too. Kind of an early, a mid, a late retirement. I think Mm -hmm. that's generally speaking true. And, And what John's getting at is how do I structure my portfolio in a way to meet my expenses in early retirement while still meeting my expenses in mid-retirement and especially still meeting my expenses in late retirement? And does it make sense to have target date funds, which just kind of you put your money in, they do the diversification for you based upon some uh, some chosen target date year or retirement year and use those to build out a retirement portfolio? So let's let's talk about that approach particularly, and then Scott, let's talk about our view on this of what might maybe a better way of viewing this might be. But to start with, you know, we mentioned this in episode sixty-nine. This is where John got this idea. But a target date fund is simply instead of choosing your own investments. So if I want yeah. this much in big stocks and this much in small stocks and this much in international and bonds, et cetera, et cetera, you choose a target date. So if I choose target date fund twenty thirty. Some company is going to manage it for kind of the average person that retires in 2030 based upon that fund's management style. Yeah, whatever they think that means. Yep. Whatever they think that means, which is generally more aggressive at the beginning and gradually gets more conservative. Yep. Now, the benefit of that is you don't really have to think about it. It, The diversifying and some of the rebalancing gets done for you. And John is saying, can we take that a step further and do multiple target date funds for the different periods of retirement? So- Let's just look at this practically yep. for a second. Let's say that um, John's saying maybe one fund for five to 10 years. So I don't know if John's this close to retirement, but let's assume that he has one target date fund for 2025. Mm-hmm. So that would be for retirement in, well, four years from today, but close enough to five. Mm-hmm. And that might fund the first five to 10 years, then target date 2030 fund for the next period, and then target date 2035 fund for expenses beyond that. Mm-hmm could work. But if you look at what you've done, you've essentially just created one big target date 2030 fund. Yeah, because you're being more aggressive with the 2035 fund and less aggressive with the 2025 fund and kind of right in that middle with that 2030 fund, more than likely, just the way that these things typically work. More than likely, yes, you've kind of created that. Now, is that a bad thing? 
No, if mentally it helps you kind of see what money is for what years, then fine. But it hasn't actually helped you all that much. You're going to have about the same mix of stocks and bonds as you would had you simply chosen the target date fund right in between. Yeah. So doable, but let's talk about what we think might be. Yeah, I mean, I I actually think that where this question is in a sense going is to... Is it better for me to have a bucket strategy for my money when I'm getting into retirement or should I invest it all together? Yeah. What's, what's so we a bucket call strategy? That, we, call, we call that like a bucket strategy or should we focus on total return? Yep. Be the two different ways of looking at that. What's a bucket strategy? Yeah. So a bucket strategy would be like, um, James, you're going to retire and you have a million dollars and you have a let's say a, ideally a 60 40 allocation you're going to so 60 600 grand will be in the stock market and 400 grand will be in the bond market or in cash and you'll just start to peel out that million dollars into specific buckets for specific reasons so right. you'll have cash and cash and you'll have bonds and bonds and you'll have stocks and stocks yep yep and the purpose of that is we know that we need part of our money growing for us over time which is the stock market but it goes up and down a whole bunch Right. So if we can have a certain portion of our portfolio in conservative investments like cash and bonds, we almost think of that as like our first bucket. Of regardless of what the stock market does, I have a bucket of money I can pull money from to create income when I'm no longer working. Yep. And so it helps you to protect against some of the stock market risk. Right. And the other thing it does, it kind of makes you it, there's this sense of like ease about it. Like, oh, I know what money I have to spend now. I can't go touch that money until next year. Oh, that money's for the future. Mm-hmm. I'm really not going to touch that money. Mm-hmm. So it can, it, there's, there's something to be said for how people feel about having a bucket strategy. And I think that's the big value in it is at the end of the day, it might be the same exact portfolio as just one big portfolio that you take 4% per year out of. Right. But you can match, you can see where you're pulling money from and you can see that where you're pulling money from this year is invested in something that really isn't subject to the ups and downs in the stock market, most yep. likely. Yeah. And the the idea that bucket approach the take it a step further, the way that would essentially work is, you know, if, if the stock market does really, really well, well then when it's time to rebalance, we've talked about rebalancing portfolios in the past. We're gonna want to probably try to keep that 60-40 allocation. So we're gonna say, uh, if the market's doing really well, well, we're probably gonna maybe reap some of the rewards from a tax perspective for new spending off of the um, equities to go replenish the cash, um, and then even shift it into the bond funds as well. Um, and then if things are doing really poorly, if the stock market is doing really poorly, we'll go ahead and use the the cash and the bonds more to give space for the stocks to come back. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's talk about a couple different approaches and how people can think through them. the The most common is maybe just the four percent rule, right? People have heard that rule four percent. If you have a portfolio of 60% stocks, 40% bonds, research shows that that's a sustainable portfolio, meaning you can take that amount out over the next 30 plus years and have a very high chance of not running out of money. Yeah. Bill Bengen did that research way back in the 90s when, he, when we originally had access to spreadsheets and data uh, <laughs> on computers. He was an engineer by trade before he became an advisor. Very, very smart man. Um, and actually, the 4% rules actually should have been a touch higher than the 4% rule. It's just that's the kind of what the tabloids took over as the name to make it simpler. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, but what he actually looked at was he looked at all data going back through the depression and looking at what was the least amount of money 
that you, or pardon me, what was the greatest amount of money that you could take out sustainably for a 30 year time frame, including horrible market crashes? Yep. Um, that's not to say that, you know, that seems reasonable for the future that I can still withhold, uh, withstand. Um, there's also some people would challenge it. So just it's a grain of salt. It's a good place to start. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a, a good way to think about it. Yeah. And the, so some differences between that and what you might have with a target date fund is that the the 4% rule doesn't just say that you can invest however you want and take out 40%. It's specific that research is done specifically saying you have 40% of your money in the S&P 500 and 40% in US government bonds. Now, you probably don't want to be invested just that way. That's just what the study was done based upon. Why I bring that up is these target date funds, they have a tendency, not tendency, that what they do is they get more and more conservative over time. So in many cases, they will actually get much more conservative than that rule of 4% portfolio is based upon. Yeah, you have to look at the underlying fund. And there's actually two, for target date funds, if you're going to look at them, John, in more detail, you actually want to look at, are they building a target date fund to retirement or are they building a target date fund through retirement? Mm-hmm. They, they can kind of be treated differently. So you want to be mindful of that. You want to be mindful of that because if you are going to rely upon the 4% rule, just keep in mind that target date funds, if they keep getting more and more conservative, many of these just turn into what are called target income funds, where they just are very conservative at some point, they might not be constructed in a way that can generate 4% per year over time. So there's some benefit to the target date fund in the sense that it just does the management for you and you just take out your percentage, but you need to really understand what is this sustainable percentage because to take 4% or even more out of your portfolio, you need to make sure you're invested the right way. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, tar- <clears throat> just to go back bigger picture for a second, target date funds are, can be lovely because they kind of help you in a way you get a chance to set it and forget it when you're younger and, and building assets. And if you don't want to take the time or you don't want to work with an advisor to go find like a really detailed version of how to build something out, even with <clears throat> our own clients, if they're just starting a very new job at a new company, and they have very little in their 401k, it can be a wonderful way to get broad diversification for very inexpensive uh, in an inexpensive manner. Yep. My, opi- of my op- own opinion is that as your asset grows and it gets larger and larger, it can certainly make sense to look at diversifying that away from what the target date fund's doing. Only reason being that we haven't even touched upon this yet, because, but it kind of like, if I was talking to John, I'd wonder, well, John, what are your goals for this money? What do you need this money to be doing for you? And we can kind of simply look at it through the lens of most people in early retirement are going to spend a little bit more than they will in mid-retirement and definitely in late retirement. It kind of goes through a touch of a, it's like a, it's like a, it's a long smiley face, right? For, for expenses, Mm -hmm. expenses are higher when we retire because we usually go do things and see kids, grandkids more and travel more. And then we kind of slow down a little bit, but we're not having increased healthcare expenses and then healthcare expenses kick in toward the end. Yep. So it just gets more expensive. So that's, there's kind of that, that cycle of costs that happens, but it's, but outside of that for just living, it's like, well, what else do you want this money to be doing for you? Do you already have enough that you're going to be passing on money to heirs? Well, then you might want to be treating that totally differently than how you're going to treat money you're going to live off of. Yeah. So, so much of it's dependent upon the underlying goals and the values of the family. I think that's exactly right. And that's, I think, the the next thing that makes sense to look at is, yes, you could just do the retirement date fund. And that will, it's hard to say, is that a good strategy or not? Because every retirement date fund is different. Yeah, and Many different companies have one and they're not all created equal. So it's hard to say what your strategy would look like with that. 
Um, it is fairly easy to say what the 4% rule looks like and what portfolio you would need to support that because that's based upon a white paper that was created that tells you exactly what it's invested in. Mm-hmm. But what Scott's referring to is kind of the way I think makes most sense to look at it is how do you understand, let's say that John's approaching retirement. Obviously, there's other goals that he's going to have, but let's just look at retirement. And when you are in retirement, this is going to be obvious, but you you sometimes don't just own stocks because stocks don't just go up. Right. Over time, they do, but in the short term, stocks can go down very fast, very quickly. And if everything you have in stocks, or if everything you have is in stocks, you run the risk of, well, what if I lose 40 to 50% of my bet value? That's not a good recipe for taking money from that. Yeah. So what you do is you want to own some money in bonds or cash, something that if and when the stock market drops, you can buffer that and you have funds that you can pull from so that your income doesn't suffer even as the stock market drops. Well, as you're looking at this, someone that goes into retirement, let's say that John and I both retire together and we, yeah, John and I, we're going to retire and we're going to travel and hang out and really going (laughs) to get to know each other. Uh, Ashlyn's going to, (laughs) she wants to travel with me instead. But if let's say that John's portfolio value, let's say we have the same exact expenses, Uh but his portfolio value is 10 times as large as mine is. So he's got 10 million and you have a million. Let's say that. Yeah. Well, let's say that we both need to have enough in bonds or cash. I'm just kind of using a hypothetical example to represent five years of living expenses. Okay. Let's, what are your living expenses? Gonna let's be? say my living grand. expenses so are 50 grand. So you each need half a million of fixed income. Yes. Well, that'd be 10 years. Oh, sorry. Five years. Let's just say five years. You're making me do math this late sorry. In the afternoon. Sorry. Sorry. No, I'm kidding. 250. 250. Thanks okay. for that easy math. Yeah. We both need 250. Well, 250,000 in bonds in my portfolio right. is 25%. Yep. So I might need 75% stocks and 25% bonds, just okay. again, hypothetically. Mm-hmm. John, though, John still only needs 250,000 in bonds. So I kind of put in needs in quotes here. Right. Only needs 250,000 in bonds to support his goals. Mm-hmm. But that's on a $10 million portfolio. Nine, 975, you could put in. He's stock. got 97.5% that he could afford to put into stocks and 2.5% that he would need to put into bonds. Now, obviously, there's other considerations. What's John's comfort level with the stock market? Are there other things that he wants to have some bonds or some money in bonds or cash for? Right. But the, the reason I bring that up is. I like taking an approach that's much more intentional about we need to understand how much do we need to have in bonds to protect against stock market downturns. Yep. But saying, oh, you're retired, you need a 60-40 portfolio. Oh, or you're retired, you need a target date 2025 portfolio. It misses the bigger picture, which is understanding how much do you have in your portfolio? What are your expenses? What are your other goals? And how do we match your assets with the liabilities that you're going to have in retirement to design a more intentional portfolio, which takes more work, but it can lead to significantly you want to say better returns, but more appropriate returns for what you're looking to do. Yeah, no, I mean, this is what we do with clients all the time. You're totally right. I mean, the next level that I think about personally, because it's another we level. We, we know nothing about John. Well, it's what you're already saying, but it's just adding a layer <laughs> to it. it. It is the next level, of course. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's the idea of, you know, when someone's going to retire at, say, like age 60 or 65, won't. Well, Ideally, you're probably if you're if you have longevity on your side, you may not want to take Social Security until you're 70. So there's a an income stream that you're not going to tap until you're 70. Mm-hmm. And then now your required minimum distribution is age 72. That's when those post tax money that you've been putting away in 401ks and IRAs, the government starts making you take out. Mm-hmm. So now you have these gap years where we can do lots of interesting things there to manage your tax um, now and in the future. But we also have to kind of account for 
What do you need as a baseline for life? What is your future income stream going to look like as social security when it turns on? And then how do we optimize those gap years in between? And you might actually want to be spending a little bit more during the gap years because it's early retirement. So there's, there's a lot of nuance to figure out there. And it usually does can um, benefit you to invest in more than one target date fund for that reason. Exactly. And really understanding what's, what's actually being owned within those funds. Yeah. So this, this is why it's hard to say, should you own a target date fund or should you just own a 60, 40 portfolio? Maybe. And the answer is always, it depends, sadly. Sorry. Yeah. We give that to you all the time. Because the next thing I think about when I think about people who are near retirement is like, do you have Roth assets? Do you have um, retirement assets? Do you have taxable income? You know, how much equity is in your home? There's just so many things to go unpack from a balance sheet to see how do you optimize it for the life that you want to be living, yeah. as well as what you want to pass on to your ne- the next generation, if that's something you want to do, or yeah. be more charitable, or whatever life looks like. Yep. Yeah, I fully agree. But I think the, the best approach is kind of doing what we're doing is understanding what will expenses look like, how will those expenses change over the duration of your retirement, and then how do you design a portfolio that's position to match those expenses or to be able to generate those expenses in the form of income all the way throughout your retirement. Yeah. And I would actually just add to that, like, don't be scared hearing that because you can almost think that like, if the first time James gives that to you, you could think like, oh my gosh, I have to now know how much deodorant is going to cost in 2035. It adds up, man. No, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) But you do need to have a general understanding of what you spend what your expenses look like, and then how much here to me, the key is how much resiliency you want to have in your um, income now, because there's different ways you can handle this. If you have more resiliency, more buffer in your income to live into now, if the markets go really bad or something goes awry or your medical costs increase or so many other things happen, it doesn't affect your life. If you're using every dollar that can possibly come out of a sustainable withdrawal rate and sustainables in quotes here, because we never know what the future holds. We just make good guesses and move on. Um, if you're really tight already, then that the chances are you have to make cha- choices on what you spend. Right. And you always have either choice, right? But it's your choice to make. Right. D- did that make sense? It does. Yeah. I think that's a, a good place to close it down. Unless you have any other thoughts, I think that's a can a good way of thinking through this i have all kinds of thoughts but i also just want to know where you and john are headed <laughs> you're retiring at the exact same time i guess we'll have to get to know each other he's got 10 times the portfolio i do at that point so <laughs> hopefully he's paying hopefully he's paying yeah exactly yeah. all right well yeah. all right, thanks john, so much for the question john <laughs> thanks john thank you all for listening we'll see you next time Thank you for listening to another episode of the Real Personal Finance Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a five-star review. And if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer, then head over to the Real Personal Finance website at realpersonalfinance.co. And there's a section on the bottom of each page there where you can submit your question for us to answer in a future episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for a basis for investment decision. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, or other professional services.